0: I have a pretty relaxed, friendly perspective on death. Of course, I don't know what happens. Nobody does. But maybe when we die, we all just go out like candles. The originator of The Simpsons, Matt Groening, put it this way. Today is the first day of the rest of your short, brutish existence as a sentient creature before being snuffed out into utter utter nothingness for all eternity. (laughs) My favorite fantasy of a potentially delightful spiritual immortality is getting to spend my forevers in multiple parallel universes. Kind of like the movie Groundhog Day, but with every imaginable version of myself pursuing <clears throat> for eternity all the many forks in the road and paths and passions that I didn't choose the other times around. I think a good God might arrange that kind of infinite growth opportunity. But sometimes the, end of, the idea of death as possibly being the end of everything, mortality as finality, that can feel like a tough gig, especially sudden reminders of mortality. They can be gut-wrenching. I felt sad all day after running over a tiny squirrel on the way to church a few weeks ago, watching him flop around behind my car. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a war zone? Whenever death randomly strikes any living thing, especially cherished, innocent life, all of life can seem terribly fragile, unkind, unfair. Or as Calvin said to Hobbes when his rescued baby raccoon died, it's either mean or it's arbitrary, and either way I've got the (laughs) heebie-jeebies. I used to think, quite smugly, that if I created the world, I wouldn't have put death into the mix, at least not young or, or grisly death. But the givens of nature the implacable axioms of change, impermanence, and mortality that make life feel so precarious, they're the necessary essential requisites of life's good side, its capacity to surprise and delight us with joy, insight, tenderness, awe, and gratitude. Life is what it is. Mark Twain said, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. (laughs) Our congregation's atheists may share the views of mortality of self-described earthiest Edward Abbey, who said, If my decomposing carcass helps nourish the roots of a juniper tree or the wings of a vulture, that is immortality enough for me. Too bad atheists can't also tell believers, I told you so. Maybe death jokes aren't a proper meditation. But my my meditations usually run pretty dark and deep, so I'm lightening things up a little bit today. I don't want everybody to say, oh, God, not her again. Although I'm often anxious about the details of living, I'm very lucky to have little fear of death. Of course, I'd rather not be there when it happens. (laughs) I don't fear hell either, thanks to a simple kindness from my war-battered atheist father. Late one night, when I was a little girl, he found me weeping quietly and guiltily in my bed, brokenhearted, because my best fundamentalist girlfriend had helpfully explained to me how he, my sweet, non-church-going dad, was going to burn in hell forever. Dad sighed. Then he asked me a few reasonable and important questions. Did I, Nancy, think that he, Dad, was a good man? Oh, yes, Dad. Yes, Daddy, you are. Well, And is God good? Well, of course. So, would a good God send a good man to hell? At that moment, the scales fell from my eyes. The sun rose in the heaven, and I have never been afraid of either God or hell since. Thanks, Dad. By the way, although I'm not afraid of hell after Earth, I am frightened of ending up in hell while I'm still here. <laughs> Our current elder care approaches simply do not protect vulnerable seniors from profiteers. Personally, I sometimes feel like the whole health care establishment is bent On preventing me from dying a quick, quiet, cheap, tolerable, and natural death. My current notion is to die young, as late as possible. (laughs) Until then, I hope to live as Mark Twain suggested, so that when I die, even The Undertaker will be sorry. The film critic Roger Ebert Nicely summed up my views on death. I know it is coming, he said, and I do not fear it, because I believe there's nothing on the other side of death to fear. I was perfectly content before I was born, and I think of death as the same state. What I am grateful for, Ebert continues, is the gift of intelligence and for life and love and wonder And laughter. You can't say it wasn't interesting. My lifetime's memories, they're what I've brought home from the trip. I will require them for eternity. No more than that little souvenir of the Eiffel Tower I brought home from Paris. So in the silence that follows, let's meditate on our lives Most Precious Souvenirs.
1: Part of what it means to be human is to be aware of our mortality. To wrestle with this existential situation in which we unwittingly find ourselves of being alive and having to die. Because ultimately, as the saying goes, none of us are getting out of this alive. Realizing, realizing our finitude can be terrifying, it can also be motivating. As our UU forebear, Henry David Thoreau, said in Walden, I wished to live deliberately, and not when I came to die discovered that I had never really lived. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. The temptation can be to repress this awareness of our mortality, but there can be tragic consequences. Some of you can think of examples from your own life, from your own friends and family of consequences when we perpetually put off these conversations about what we want at the end of life, if at all possible. The surgeon, Atoll Gawande, tells the story of a patient who demanded, don't you give up on me, give me every chance I've got. The will to live is often undeniably strong, but with the advances that we have today in medicine, the desire to live at all costs can have serious unintended consequences. Gawande writes, I believe then... I believe then that this patient had chosen badly, I believe this still. He chose badly not because of the dangers, but because the operation didn't give him a chance of achieving what he really wanted. What he really wanted was his continence, his strength. He wanted back the life he had previously known, but he was pursuing little more than a fantasy at the risk of a prolonged and terrible death. And that is precisely what he got. Those are hard words, but they call us to be more honest about life and more honest about death with ourselves and with our loved ones. How many of you have read Gawande's best selling book, Being Mortal? Okay, a few of you. Uh, I recommend it. The, rec- the runaway success of this book is one among many hopeful signs that our culture is slowly becoming more willing to confront in a more mature way the realities of death and dying. Uh, Gwande's book is short but profound. Being mortal. Now, I'll leave to another day, the philosophical discussion of whether we would want to live forever if that were an option. As Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work, I want to achieve immortality through not dying. He said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen, I want to live on in my apartment. (laughs) But since living forever on this earth is not yet an option, I'd like to invite us to reflect on what is possible. What are the ways of increasing our likelihood of dying well? That's actually not a term you hear people talk about often enough. What does it mean to die well? Or what some people call, what would a good enough death be, look like? Here's one example of what a good enough death might mean. It might mean being prepared to die with my affairs in order. The good and bad messages delivered that need delivering. The good death means dying while my mind is still relatively sharp and aware. It also means dying without having to endure large amounts of suffering and pain. The good death means accepting death as inevitable and not fighting it when the time comes and there is nothing left to be done, what economists sometimes call diminishing marginal returns. That is, however, just one, what I've been describing, just one among many possibilities about what a good death or what a good enough death might look like. And ultimately, of course, your relationship with mortality is your own. Historically speaking, humanity's relationship to mortality has changed drastically Over time. For much of human history, the life of our ancestors was one of continual fear and danger, of violent death, and the life of man was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Around 30,000 years ago, life expectancy was around 30. It wasn't until the development of agriculture around 10,000 years ago that things started to change. Soon people recognized that, wait, we get sick less often if we separate our drinking water from our sewage. And in relatively short time, the human race experienced a 20 to 30 year gain in life expectancy. When the first European settlers arrived in North America, to be frank, all they did was die. If it wasn't starvation, the freezing cold, battles with the native people, it was influenza, diphtheria, dysentery, or smallpox that did them men. At the end of the first three years of the Jamestown settlement in Virginia, 440 of the original 500 settlers were dead. If you were the mother of five children, you were lucky to have two of them live past the age of ten. Today, plagues, basic infections, childhood diseases have, for the most part, been eradicated. We've added an additional 30 years to the human lifespan just in the past 100 years alone. In 1900, Americans could realistically expect to live to the age of 47. By the 1930s, 59. By 2000, that age expectancy had reached nearly 80. Infant mortality rates have dropped from 56 deaths per 1,000 births in 1935 to only 7 per 1,000 in the year 2000. One of the most significant results of these changes is that today, most of us in this country, we see and are around death much less frequently than has ever before been the case in human history. A few generations ago, dying at home, hosting a wake with a loved one's body that you had cleaned and and put up yourself and had on your dining room table, potentially, that was actually quite common in burying your dead yourself at home. As recently as 1945, most deaths occurred in the home. By the 1980s, just 17% did. And in recent decades, we've seen increasingly strong pushback against this trend of everyone dying in hospitals that started around the middle of the 20th century. People begin saying, that's not what I want. That's not what what they saw their loved ones going through. Such that by 2010, 45% of Americans died in hospice, more than half of them dying in hospice care at home. Now, it's hard to overemphasize the significance and the speed of these changes around our mortality, death, and dying. We are still wrestling with how to live well and die well with longer lifespans and advanced technology. To use a vivid picture from Guande's book, Being Mortal, for most of human history, a person's relationship with mortality over the course of their life, it looked like a cliff. You stayed on a plateau relatively distant from death until one day something happened to you and you dropped immediately off the cliff. But for increasing numbers of us, modern medicine has made shuffling off this mortal coil more like an extended, bumpy trip down the mountain. Or potentially worse, a long, slow fade in which we approach death like, if you think back to geometry, like an asymptotic curve. We hover just above the edge of mortality, sometimes for a very long time. In extreme cases such as Terry Schiavo or Karen Ann Quinlan, those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Google it, Uh, lots of news coverage about these cases. In those cases, we can't even agree about what dying means anymore. For the vast majority of human history, death meant the almost simultaneous, simultaneous end of heartbeat, breathing, and brain function. But starting in the 1970s, technological innovation made it possible to keep the heart and lungs going almost indefinitely in many cases. So you could keep what sometimes instead of being called life support, you're seeing it being called physiological support because it's not actually supporting life. And But this technological changes created difficult dilemmas for some families because patients in a persistent vegetative state, even when the brain, to be a little graphic, had atrophied such that you only had the brain, the brain stem remaining, even at that point, you can still, uh, in many cases, still have people in a persistent vegetative state follow a regular sleep schedule, yawn, open their eyes, blink, and move their arms and legs. They appear alive, but there is zero chance. of their their body ever regaining sentience. Technology is forcing us to balance life-sustaining measures with quality of life. And regarding how to make these decisions toward the end of life, I'd like to share with you just three brief case studies that show the importance of having these conversations in advance with ourselves and with our loved ones about what does and doesn't make life meaningful for them. These conversations can often be both quite reassuring as well as quite surprising. Uh, to give you just one case study from Gawande's being mortal on the eve of a major surgery, a daughter was surprised when her father, who'd been a professor and you know, really loved books and learning, he surprised when her dad said, Well, if I'm able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV, then I'm willing to stay alive. I'm willing to go through a lot of pain, he said, if I have a shot at that. The next day, the surgeon told her that she had three minutes to make a decision about whether to proceed after a spinal bleed had likely already made her father a quadriplegic. She was relieved that he had already made this decision himself. She asked, if my father survives, will he be able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV? They said, yes. She said, we'll keep operating. She later realized if she had not had that conversation with her father, she would have let him die. That day. And in retrospect, he had significant quality of life for two more years. When Gawande faced a similar situation with his own father, his dad was clear that he was more afraid of becoming a quadriplegic than of dying. So at a similarly crucial point, he asked the surgeon, which poses a greater risk for his father becoming a quadriplegic in the next couple months, stopping or proceeding with the surgery? The surgeon said stopping would actually have the greater risk of paralysis over the next few months. So again, it also actually turned out to be the right choice. More importantly, either way it had it turned out, it was his father's own choice for himself. The third case is of a young athlete, a scholar, and an executive diagnosed with a terminal illness. Now, his doctors were surprised that despite the high quality of life that he had experienced prior to his diagnosis, this patient was clear that actually his final months, which had been characterized by relentless physical deterioration and considerable suffering, had actually turned out to be among the best year of his life. And he would not have wanted to prematurely end his life because his physical decline, even though it had been painful and limiting in some ways, had given him the opportunity to repair other aspects of his life. Quality of life can look like many different things to many different people. The important piece is to create that time and space to allow people to say what they want and what actually does give them quality of life. If you haven't had these sort of of end-of-life conversations with your loved ones and you're not sure how to start that conversation, I highly recommend Googling The Conversation Project. You can just Google that, but it's theconversationproject.org. Their poignant and provocative motto is, it is always too soon before it's too late. So just have the conversation. And to be really honest, the upcoming Thanksgiving and winter holidays, those are prime opportunities. When you talk to people about when should we have these conversations, that's when. When people have time off and they're all together. Relatedly, if you or your loved ones don't have a will, a living will, and a power of attorney, do that today. Do that next week. Don't put it off. And that's something you need to do again every time you have a major life change. You know, you buy a house, you have a kid, you get divorced, you know, you have a major illness. You need to look again at your will, your living will, and your power attorney. One good starting point for that process, Google five wishes. I'll also put the link to these in the sermon manuscript that we put on our website. Now, there's a lot more to say about discerning and supporting end-of-life choices, including the need for death with dignity legislation, but I wanted to be sure to at least touch briefly on the shifts that are happening, uh, that are happening around what do we do with our bodies on the other side of our mortality. As early as around 100,000 years ago, we have archaeological evidence of Homo sapiens burying their dead, what we would call, with purpose. The bodies are buried in ritualized positions and with ritualized elements included. Now, we can't understand what those ancient people thought about death or the afterlife or even the corpse, but these clues do tell us that they did think about it. The custom used to be natural burial at home, but in the 19th century, a lot of this started springing up around the Civil War. Embalming practices became increasingly common, and then what we saw over the decades were these skyrocketing costs associated with funerals. A turning point came in 1963 for two reasons. One, Jessica Milford published a best-selling expose of the funeral industry titled The American Way of Death. Who remembers or read that book? Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, That same year, Pope Paul VI overturned the Roman Catholic Church's ban on creation. Cremation, not creation. That would be really interesting. (laughs) We'll talk about that in February for Darwin Day. No, um... Rates of cremation have risen steadily in the years since 1963 with that lifting of the cremation band and the publication of Mitfer's book. In 2014, 44% of Americans chose cremation. It's estimated that by uh, 2020, this will become the majority option. Uh, I should also note that instead of actually going back to read *The American Way of Death*, it's kind of interesting historically. But the really great 21st-century parallel I'd recommend is an excellent memoir called *Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory* by Caitlin Doty. She's a young, a young hipster um, funeral director that's really part of leading edge of the current alternative funeral industry. I really recommend her books: so, *Being Mortal* and *Smoke Gets in Your Eyes*. Uh, Currently, my will calls for me to be cremated, but I'm less convinced than I once was that it's the cleanest or simplest choice. On one hand, it is an improvement environmentally from filling the earth with concrete vaults and bodies full of toxic chemicals. The average 10-acre cemetery contains enough coffin wood to build 40 homes and has enough toxic formalin to fill a backyard swimming pool. That's every 10 acres of cemetery. On the other hand, significant energy is required and hazardous emissions are released in the process of heating an oven to 1,800 degrees for four hours to turn a body into ashes. And it denies part of what um, Nancy was talking about with Edward Abbey of you know, putting your um, body, you know, recycling yourself as it were. I'm increasingly interested in the green burial movement in which bodies without any chemical preparation are buried with a simple cloth shroud. In some of these cemeteries, sometimes people also do it on their land and in their own backyard, so to speak. Uh, But in some of these cemeteries, after a certain number of years, depending on local soil and weather conditions, another person can be buried in that same spot, which makes sense with, you know, 7 billion plus people on this planet. And where are we going to put them? The number of Green Burial Council-approved cemeteries, you can Google Green Burial Council if you want to learn more, in North America, they've grown from one in 2006 to 300 today. There are three in D.C. Metro. For now, as we continue to wrestle with the meaning of mortality and with our response to being alive and having to die, I'll close with these words from the poet Mary Oliver. She writes, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing that your own life depends on it. And when the time comes, to let it go. To let it go. Let me share just... one or two quick things from my family so i shared some just general thoughts about mortality and uh it has been my honor as of being a minister for you know a decade and a half plus now to accompany families on you know in these end of life journeys it's incredibly moving and meaningful but those aren't my stories to tell so let me tell you just a quick story from a few examples of the things i carry with me from witnessing these in my own family the when I was 15, as many of you know, my father died of esophageal cancer, and it was, probably, it was evident by around, uh, so I was a freshman in high school, so off, evident around Christmas Eve was the last time he went to work, and he died in March, and just really grateful that he was able to be on hospice, because he was, you know, had, he was able to extend his life through some hospitalizations and treatments, but he hated the hospital, as, you know, hated being woken up, so being able to spend his final months at home in a, in a hospital bed, at, at, that was a tremendous gift. He's said that all the time he would ask my mother he's like like when he'd have a bad day occasionally he said you know is she going to take me to the hospital and you and just being able to tell him no you're you're going to be able to die at home was a tremendous comfort to him Um, My grandmother died, um, my maternal grandmother died this past year, and I never expected we cremate her, so that was an interesting to sort of see, that to me was a sign of the shift, and she also was able, she lived in her own home about a mile away from my mother until she was was 95 when she died, she died very quickly, uh, and I always wanted her to go to an assisted living facility, but it's just, it's not what she wanted, and she never quite had to, and that was, uh, I'm grateful for that. my paternal um grandmother had alzheimers and that was probably the hardest death that we've uh that i've personally sort of intimately lived through and the what i carry with me is uh, my grandfather and my grandmother had a beautiful marriage but uh i just remember him saying quite a few and on a, quite a few occasions, he just used to say, "She's just not good to herself or anyone else anymore," and it was just it was just heartbreaking for him and to, to sort of live with that. She the her name was Grace, and the, what I'm grateful for is that uh, unlike some people get really angry with some of these dementia diseases, and she never did. She was always beautiful, sweet, and, and pleasant to the very end. And with my grandfather, it's the last story I'll tell. My paternal grandfather also lived to be. She was in her late 80s. My grandmother Grace. My grandfather Leonard was lived to be 90. 96 and was a farmer and lived at home. The last few months he was in the hospital, uh, I mean in the nursing home, and uh, what finally, he started to have kidney failure, and he could have actually lived longer, but he said the, um, the medication made his food all taste terrible, and for him, he was just like, I don't want to live like that, and so he said, I'm either, I'm just going to not take the medication, and I'm going to enjoy eating, and that was, you know, so... These are hard decisions, Um, lots of stories. I'd be glad to talk with any of you who are discerning around these decisions for yourself and your loved ones. But all I can say is around end of life or every decision we make in this life, try to continue your journey with love. To care for one another and to do whatever we choose, to care for the earth in doing it. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.